The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I keep a small inventory of my favorite sayings from the El Arroyo Marquis sign here in Austin. And a couple about having children came to mind this week. First is having a child is like having a broke best friend who thinks you're rich. And I especially feel that as my children are getting older. But secondly, the fastest land animal is a toddler who's been asked what's in their mouth, which we see and experience each and every week as we let our children out to go and get donuts. It's kind of dangerous, especially the last few weeks as the sod out there that we've newly laid has been roped off. Several children have almost clotheslined themselves, or they just stand there staring at us blankly about to cry, wondering why we've roped off their precious donuts from them. But those sayings came to mind this week because I know it's Palm Sunday. And our children are such a large part of our service, but also because of what happened last Monday in Nashville at our sister church, Covenant Presbyterian. As you know, children are such a joy and a delight, and there's so much life in them so that crimes against them feel particularly heinous and are. And everything that we're doing this morning with our children is really a protest against that evil and those crimes that have been perpetrated. And as you also probably know, my colleague and friend's daughter is one of the children who were killed. Her name is Hallie Scruggs. And my friend Chad baptized her on the very same day that our pastor, Brent Baker, baptized his daughter at PCPC in Dallas. Brent and Allison were able to go to the funeral yesterday. But additionally, one of our congregants' aunts is Cindy Peak, who's a substitute teacher. She was also, her life was also taken. And she was there at Covenant on Monday because she has a planned trip to Europe next week with her daughter, and she was there subbing to earn a little bit more money for that trip. So every detail that I hear, it's all the more painful and unfathomable 
But it's also raised for me the question about where it is and how it is that God begins to bring about redemptions in situations like this. Situations that are so deeply broken and people are so deeply damaged by the sin, the evil, and death in this world. Where does God even begin? And the book of Judges helps us with that question, as does our gospel reading from Matthew about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, which we consider on this Sunday every year, Palm Sunday. It's a complex day, but it helps us answer the question of where and how God begins to redeem the shattered brokenness of this world. And so three points this morning, contentment, number one, obscurity, secondly, and then sight, number three. First of all, contentment. Contentment can be a virtue. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain for we bring nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. And he's especially here speaking about godly contentment as it's particularly associated with worldly possessions. But that's not the, con- the contentment that I'm talking about this morning. In Judges, we see a different type of contentment, a progressively deepening ungodly contentment here in our passage. In fact, we especially see it in what we don't read and don't find in this passage compared to the other ones that we've read throughout the series. In every previous passage with the five previous judges whose stories comprise this book, we read, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over. And and we read that here. But what do we not read? We don't read, and Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. We read of him promising to raise up a deliverer, but we read nothing of them crying out. There's no crying out here in our passage. And it's not an oversight. It's not as though the author forgot to include it. It's intentionally been left out because this omission is depicting something that we've been emphasizing throughout this series, and that is the ever-progressing worse and worsened state of the people of God. They don't get better in this book. They get worse and worse and worse until the book ends. And don't make the mistake that the previous times of crying out to the Lord that we don't have here, but we've seen previously, don't mistake them for what they're not. They're not repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is true sorrow. It's appropriate sorrow. It's something that's legitimately wrong that you've done, that others have done, that moves them to, to, to try and change at least, to turn away from whatever is morally wrong and to at least attempt to not go back. We don't have that here. That's not what we have in the book of Judges. In fact, this, this crying out is very, very different. And how do I know this? Number one, because the Hebrew verb that's used here throughout the book of Judges to, to speak about crying out, it doesn't denote repentance, but just a cry of anguish, just simply a cry of pain. In other words, they don't want to change. They just don't want to hurt anymore. Usually in the Old Testament, when repentance is in view, this verb that's used here is coupled with other verbs. We don't have that here. And another reason I know that's not repentance is because Israel never really changes throughout the book, at least not for very long. They're only briefly turned and only as long as that judge is there to apply some sort of external presence and external pressure. There's no interior power or interior motivation that we seem within the people of Israel to continue in the change that they've begun. In other words, their hearts aren't changed. Just their behavior is momentarily modified. And so we need to consider our crying out as well, because all of us cry out at some point to God specifically, or just in general for what we're going through, but we all cry out. And so is it just a cry of anguish? Is it just a cry of frustration or anger because you've been caught at doing something or what you were attempting to do failed? 
Do you just want the pain to stop? Or do you want to change? Or your cries laden with any sense of ownership or acknowledgement that what you did was wrong and it damaged others. It didn't just damage you, but it damaged others. Or are your cries simply about you, your pain? That's Israel's cries here, just simply about their pain, nothing else. And that is why I think that we don't hear of any crying out at all in chapter 13, because they've become slaves once again. They're ruled by foreign nations and therefore also by these foreign nations' gods. In fact, they're worshiping these other nations' gods and they're living in accordance with the ways and the beliefs and the teachings of these other gods. And previously that hurt. Previously they recognized and felt the pain and the damage that that was doing to them. They felt something and they wanted relief at least. It wasn't a cry of repentance, but at least they wanted relief. Here there's no cry. There's no objection They've grown so accustomed to their servitude and their enslavement that they're content with it. Content to be in spiritual and moral and actual slavery. It's normal for them now. The question is, is it normal for us? Because this can happen to us. The power that is sin is still quite capable of making us content with life that is not life and with wisdom that's actually foolishness. And with relationships that aren't actually communion and with ethics that are choices that don't run with the grain of the universe, but against the grain. And I use this image with you often, but imagine a freshly cut piece of wood and you continue running your hand against the grain with all the splinters and all the cuts and all the blood and all the pain. And you do it over and over and over again to the point where then you call it good. That's where we are now in Judges. And it's where any of us can get to individually. It's where some of you are right now in your life. And I think, and it seems increasingly to me that that's where our culture finds itself. There was an article on the CNN website about a month ago or so by a licensed marriage and family therapist, this man named Ian Kerner. And he recently published a new book on marriage. And in this article, he writes about what is now called ethical non-monogamy. Apparently, that's not a contradiction in terms anymore. Ethical non-monogamy. Kerner writes that in his practice, he's seen an increase in the interest from his patients in exploring this. And he says that coincides with several studies that he's recently found. One that he quotes is the, the Kinsey Institute, which surveyed 822 monogamous people, and one-third of them said that they fantasized about non-monogamy, and 80% of that one-third were ready to act upon it. So over 25% of those surveys, said that they were ready. And Karen says that they can, they can act upon it. They can fulfill those desires and it can be good and life-giving for them as a couple with, with one key. And that is consent. He says if both partners agree to it, if they both want non-monogamy, then it is ethical and good for them. But what is he really saying? And what's really behind that? Notice But in order to say that, he also has to say there's nothing objective about monogamy, nothing objectively true and good, nothing creational, nothing in accord or consistent with the grain or the universe and how things simply are for us and for all things, because that's how we've been made. In other words, there's no objective standard for goodness or truth at all when it comes to relationships or marriage or anything else. What is good, right, true, beautiful, and ethical is entirely subjective, Determined, dependent upon how you feel about it, that's what makes it right or wrong. 
So if both partners agree and they feel a certain way about it, then it's good for them. Friends, the scriptures say that ethical non-monogamy or whatever innocuous new word that we try to, to use to make it sound as though it won't tear us apart, the scriptures say it will. It'll tear our relationships apart. It will tear our souls apart because we weren't created that way. We were created in the image of God and we were created in the image of God because that's how God is. Just ethical non-monogamy is just another form of the hyper-subjectivism and expressive individualism that's come to dominate our culture's thinking, and increasingly, we're content with it. And there's fewer and fewer who are objecting and crying out. And so what spiritual or moral servitude have you become content with? You become so accustomed to it that you're numb to it, and it no longer hurts as it should, as it once did. Look at it. Look deeply at it. This is the week. Lent is a time. This is the last week of Lent. Lent is a time for courageous looking and for a holy discontentment. We have one week left. And so look, don't look away. Don't subsist in some sort of numb contentment. That is not life and will never be. So contentment. Point two, though, obscurity. There's a great deal of obscurity here that pervades the Samson narrative. And by the way, this is the final sermon in our sermon series on Judges. For now, I'm going to return to Judges this summer and do a four-week series on the life of Samson. So today is just a little bit of an introduction to him. But obscurity pervades his story. For one, two paradoxes bookend his story. One, he, it begins with him being born of a barren woman. And then it ends with him as a disabled man defeating his enemies. So how does a a barren woman give birth? And how does a disabled man defeat his enemies? There's obscurity throughout, but also with these women in this story, there are four women. There's Samson's mother, Samson's wife, a prostitute, and then Samson's temptress, whose name is Delilah. Anyone here named Delilah? Nope. And good (laughs) because her name is related to the Hebrew word for night. And throughout Samson's story, his enemies try to capture him at night, but they continually fail until a night or a darkness descends upon him and Delilah that he can't escape. And it's interesting that Delilah is the only woman named in the story. His mother's not even named. His father's named Zorah, not Zorro. That would have been much cooler, but Zorah, he gets named, but not Samson's mother. And why? Because not naming her moves us closer to answering this question about how and where God begins to bring redemption to the most desperate situations, the most broken of people. He most often does so in the scriptures in and through obscurity. In the Bible, God usually brings about his redemption when no one expects it and where no one is looking for it to come from. And we've seen this pattern throughout the book of Judges. All of the judges fit this pattern. Othniel, he was the first one. He was a Kenizzite from the tribe, and that probably means very little to you, but the Kenizzites were not one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was a foreigner. He was a pagan. He was an outsider. He was a convert and an immigrant to Israel. No one would have expected him to be the first deliverer. And then there's Ehud, who was a left-handed man. It's the only thing said about him because the right hand is usually the strongest hand. And especially in that day and age, when they looked at the right hand, they saw strength. And so where they looked to for strength, they only saw weakness in him. The world saw him as weak, and that was their expectation for him. And then there's Deborah, a woman 
Other nations would have laughed at her and laughed at Israel for being led by her. And then there's Gideon, a man of little faith who has to be reassured time and time and time again. His story's the longest. And we get tired of Gideon. We get tired of his whining. We get tired of him having to be reassured time and time again. When we first meet him, he's hiding from the enemy and he's working for his father, who's a priest at a pagan shrine. And so God chooses a pagan priest's son to save Israel. And he says, no, so I don't want to do it. I'm inadequate. I can't do it. And God says, I know, but I will be with you. And again, he still balks. It's not inspiring human leadership in any way. And then there's Jephthah. Josh preached upon him last week. A bastard, not just any old bastard, but a prostitute's illegitimate son whom everyone hated, especially his full blood brothers who run him out of town. And finally, Samson, born of a barren woman with no name. And that should get our attention because barren women are a part of a biblical pattern that's far bigger than just the book of Judges. It's this major thread and and storyline throughout the Bible. And many of you know this. Many of you know the name of the barren women throughout the scriptures. There's Sarah and there's Rachel and Rebecca, all in Genesis, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we find Hannah in 1 Samuel. She's the mother to the prophet Samuel, who'll be the the prophet to anoint the first king of Israel. Then we get to the New Testament and it's Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. She too is barren. And he is the prelude to Jesus. He's the prophet who announces the coming of the Messiah. Without barren women, there is no biblical story. Without barren women, there is no salvation. And once again, here we find when God begins to do something, it's through a woman who has no power in herself to do what is most uniquely representative of being a woman. She's not even named because she's nothing. She's so obscure. And this is where God begins to bring his redemption precisely here in human obscurity and human hopelessness and utter inability where there's no human ability or energy or effort to serve as a starter for what God alone can do. And that's where he begins when we can do nothing just like her and where we don't even want him or desire him to do so just like Israel. And so is that you? Is that you this morning? Do you know this place? Because the people of Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville do. I promise you that Palm Sunday feels and looks very different for them today. Do you think their children are waving palm branches? Do you think any of their children even came to church? I'm sure they did, but I don't know. I do know that they see Palm Sunday very differently today. The day after their senior pastor's only daughter was buried and she should have been walking down, waving palm branches, just like our children this morning. So what do they see that only suffering like they've experienced can reveal? What do they see? Point three, sight. For one, maybe they see the ambivalence of the crowd more fully. For those of you who who have been here on Palm Sundays in the past, you know that the word ambivalence represents all of this passage for me. We often think about the word ambivalence as meaning uncaring or apathetic, kind of like the people of Israel, as I've described. But no, this word means conflicting or contradictory, undecided or unresolved. It means wishy-washy, vacillating back and forth. And that is Palm Sunday, the day in which we react what they actually did on that day, waving palm branches like flags, cheering Jesus and celebrating him as their king only a few days later to cry out for him to be crucified. So today is a day that begins in celebration, but ends in catastrophe and tragedy. 
just like Monday morning in Nashville. And let's be honest, just like our lives, just like our lives, if and when we're left to ourselves to do what is right in our own eyes, as Judges speaks about, with no king, as Judges speaks about. When we set out to do what is right in our own eyes and to make our own choices, often our own choices initially start off fine, just like this parade in Matthew 21. But before too long, the celebration is over. Like some of your marriages, I imagine. Like the lives of your children or your relationships with them. Or maybe your career or that dating relationship that you had so much hope for or your relationship to work, your relationship to alcohol, or your relationship to that person at work that began supposedly innocently and just a little bit of flirting just for fun, but now it's a disaster. Whatever the application is, the pattern holds. Start out in celebration and end in catastrophe because this day is our world. This is our lives in this world left to ourselves. This is the day that we all know each and every day to some extent because we are the ambivalent crowd wanting God to be our king and our savior one day, but ready to kill him and get rid of him so that we can go our own way a few days later. That is how dark even this day of celebration is, how dark this world is apart from God. And the people of Covenant Presbyterian, they see it all the more clearly. But here's what I imagine they also see. And that is even in the ambivalence and the darkness and the chaos of this day, they see that Jesus is a king He is the king in control because that's Matthew's emphasis throughout this gospel. Presenting Jesus as the heir, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the true king, the rival to all other kings and the conqueror of all other false kings. That's why Matthew's gospel begins with evil King Herod, who does exactly in his day what that shooter did on Monday in Nashville, who slaughters innocent children. All the kings of this world do this in some way. That is what sin does. It preys upon the weakest and the most innocent. All the kings of the world, all the powerful of the world do this. But our hope is that Jesus has come into our world to be a different sort of king. Not the king who takes the lives of the weak and the innocent, but who dies for the ambivalent and the guilty. He is a burden-bearing king. Everything that we need to know about this day is in verse 5, which reads, Behold your king. See him mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden. Donkeys are low animals. They don't exalt their rider. They're, they're not tall or beautiful. They're ugly with oblong faces and long flapping ears and stumpy legs and a wide body. They're not built for speed or for beauty. They're built for burdens. And by riding this animal, Jesus is saying, this is why I've come. I've come to bear the burdens of this world. And this is how I'll become king, by bearing your burdens, by bearing the burdens of anyone that would come to me, whatever those burdens may be, whatever wounds or sin or losses that you may carry, I will bear it. No burden is too great that I won't bear it. No depth is too low that I won't stoop. Even into the depth of death, I will stoop and I will go. I will even bear that burden. I think our friends at Covenant Perez in Nashville see that more clearly today because they need to. They need to. They feel and they recognize their need to see it, to see a king who is in control despite all the chaos swirling around him and around them. And that is Jesus here. Every detail of this passage, even down to the very specific donkey who's chosen, he chooses. Verse six says that he directs. Jesus directs the redemption that is coming in and through this day. And they need to see that. They feel their need to see that. 
And they also see a king who begins to redeem what's most broken in the worst of situations when they have nothing to offer, nothing to give, no energy, no capacity, nor even any desire to contribute anything to their own salvation because he is the one carrying out their salvation, not them. They need to see that when we are sunk in the ambivalence of our sin and the pain and the pits of this world and can't even begin to desire to move out, he moves towards us. He comes to us and bears not simply our burdens, our sins, our losses, our sadness, but he bears us. His death on the cross was no accident. He chose it. He chose it as our king. It was his plan to become our king, to forgive us, and to reveal his love and grace for us and to actually change our hearts, to actually bring about true repentance and restore the joy that this world and all its brokenness and evil has stolen. My friend and fellow senior pastor, Chad Scruggs, released a simple and brief, yet perfectly encapsulating and profound statement about his daughter this last week. He's actually said far more because he preached her service yesterday. But before that, he said this, He said, through tears, we trust that Hallie is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. There's no contentment there. Neither is there any obscurity anymore because he says he knows his daughter's savior. He has seen Jesus all the more fully and the more clearly through this tragedy. And he trusts, he trusts not what he can say, not what he can do to make things right. He knows he is helpless to make things right, but Jesus is not. And he trusts Jesus. He trusts that Jesus will direct them in and through and out of this tragedy because he directed the tragedy of the cross. He directed the tragedy of all tragedies and the crime of all crimes and the death of all death, the death that undoes and defeats death. The king who tragically died for Halley will raise Halley just as he was raised. That is what Chad sees. And that is what we need to see. And that is who and what we need to trust. And so trust him. Trust him and follow him today. Trust him and follow him this week. He loves you. He's kind to you. He is the king that your heart needs to trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us to do everything that we have read of and everything that has been said, that we would be by your grace enabled to trust you with all of our life. For we know that that you have given your life that our life might be restored. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our opportunity to be here together to worship you in and through him and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.